Hallelujah, hallelujah. Does anyone get the sense that Jesus loves you? Has anyone got that sense this morning that, that, that Jesus actually is crazy about you? Amen? He really is. The Bible says that we are the apple of his eye. Before Stevie Wonder ever thought about it, God said, you are the apple of my eye. Our friend that sticks closer than a brother. The one who loves us in our most unlovely state. And I don't know about you, but I've been in pretty, some pretty unlovely states sometimes. Amen. I'm not talking about Virginia or Maryland. I'm talking about my soul. Amen. Messed up, jacked up, turned around. But Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if that weren't enough, so does the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Am I good on this mic? Am I good? I guess I'm good on this mic. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It is good to come together and worship the Lord. Who's happy about worshiping the Lord together today? Amen. Amen. Let me, let me jump into this message this morning. Uh, this morning, actually on YouTube. How many Sixers fans here? Sixers? All right. 10, 9, 8, 76 ers Glory. They look good last night against the Washington Wizards. Amen. They look good. But, but this morning I got on YouTube and I was watching uh, an old video of an old Sixer named Dolph Shays. You got to be old to know who Dolph Shays is, but I'm old so I know who he is. Dolph Shays actually played when it was the Syracuse Nationals, and he played his whole career with the Nationals until the last year they actually became the Sixers, and then he became the Sixers coach. So he was an old-time guy, but boy, was he good. Uh, he, he, when he retired, he was the second leading scorer in the history of the league, and he won the NBA championship in 1955. He was a 12-time All-NBA selection. Dolph Shays was off the heezy. Amen? He was. He was just that good. Uh, but, but, but when I watched Dolph Shays on YouTube, uh, it was interesting. He had great range. A lot of the shots that he shot today would be three-pointers. They didn't have a three-point line back then because he could shoot from way out. Uh, but his main offensive weapon was uh, his, his jump shot, which is actually not a jump shot. It was a two-handed set shot. If anyone watched old basketball stuff, so, so he's here and he does, he does this. It just kind of looks like this. It looks like you might think a, a, a five-year-old on their Nerf hoop, right? Uh, they just kind of don't even jump, just jump a little bit. And with two hands, you put the ball up. Listen, y'all, that would not work in the NBA today. How many know that? How many know that it's Dolph or anyone else was trying to do this in the NBA today? It would get swatted away every single time. It just wouldn't work. Uh, now, he was probably talented enough. He would he would change his game a little bit to to be in, in the modern game. But but why am I saying this? I'm saying this because here's what I want you to see. That no matter how good things might have been and no matter how skilled you might be at different things, if we're going to be effective today and tomorrow and the next day, we need to embrace real change. 
We just have to. We have to embrace change and difference in the kingdom of God uh, for it to work. We have to be open to the way that Jesus radically changes things both in our own lives and in methods of ministry so that we can relate the gospel well to coming generations. They've got to get it and they'll get it through this generation making those kind of changes. Let's stand together and we want to look at the word of God today. We're going to look at Mark chapter two. We're going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. And if I can find it in my Bible here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, I know right where it is. Mark chapter two. And we'll be reading from verses 12 or 13 through 22 in Mark chapter two. So let's read the word of God together. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. Somebody ought to say amen right there. Amen. Verse 18. Let's look at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshruck cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Today, I'm going to speak on the subject in the story of Jesus series, the kingdom creating change. Kingdom creating change. And, and, and the main idea that I want you to see is this today. The way of Jesus demands, somebody say demands, a radical break from the status quo that is specifically geared to reach the most needy. God's going to do it. He is going to do it. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you this day that 
you are crazy about us and we can't understand it. That you love us, that you know our names, that you call us friend and we can't understand it. But your love is so much greater than we could have ever hoped for, Lord. So I pray that in the coming moments as we share your word, that you will speak to every heart here and everyone who's watching this online as well by your spirit, that your name will be be made great in us and through us to the glory of Jesus. Be with us in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord, everyone. Wow. I love, I love, I love uh, the book of Mark, which we've been going through, and I love this section of Scripture. Let me tell you where we're going to go, then we'll go there, and then I'll tell you where we went. How's that? How's that? Uh, first of all, here's where we're, we're about to go. There, there's three main ideas that we'll see uh, as we walk through this text. Number one, kingdom creating change. There is a new feast. Number two, there's a new fast. And then a radical, radical break. So let's look at those in order. First of all, when Jesus comes on the scene, there is a new Feast, a brand new feast. I'm not going to read through it again because we just went through that. But the story here starts with Jesus doing what he does. Jesus is back in Capernaum by the sea and he's teaching multitudes. He's teaching the crowds. And the text says that as he's doing this, he begins to walk along the way and he sees a tax collector named Levi and calls him to follow after him. Now, Levi, who was also known as Matthew and is the writer of the first gospel, this same man, this this Levi just drops everything and follows Jesus. Now, many of you are are a little bit of Bible scholars, so you know some of this, but I, I really believe that there's no way we can actually understand just how crazy this was for people watching Jesus. For for a Jewish person in the first century, there was probably no one worse than a Jewish tax collector. A Jewish tax collector. They were the ultimate traitors of their people. They were were traitors. They, They were given the legal right by the Roman authorities to extort money from their own people. They would take the the Roman tax, but on top of that, they would extort more money and make themselves rich. They colluded with the enemy against their own people. And Jesus, walking by this crowd, sees Levi and calls him out. Calls out this traitor of the people. It's 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 nuts to think that that Jesus would do this. But here he is. Basically, Levi had made a deal with the devil to make himself rich at the expense of his own people. So here's Levi. How, how, how could we think of Levi in this day? Well, probably a couple different ways. Levi is the ruthless dude in the neighborhood who always has stacks of cash. He's wearing the flyest gear that there is, but he's doing it at the expense of all those around him. Or we could put Levi in a nice suit without Levi's on, probably. But Levi is in a a nice 
$2,000 Armani suit. Levi is a CEO executive. And in his function as a business magnate, he manipulates people. He distorts truth. He, he lies and he does whatever he can do to get money from people for his Ponzi scheme so that he gets rich while others uh, go into bankruptcy. We can look at Levi a bunch of different ways, but he is a traitor to his people. He's getting rich off of the misfortune of others, and he's bringing that misfortune on them himself. So here's what he is. And so Jesus is walking by this group. We would call this a group of scoundrels, right? There's probably a bunch of them there, but Jesus looks and he sees, he locks eyes with this man. And he calls him, Levi, come, follow me. Levi doesn't consult with anyone. He doesn't have a meeting of his inner circle. He just bounces out and rolls with Jesus. (laughs) He's ready to go. He's ready to go. And Jesus knew he was ready to go. And then the text says that that Levi throws a party. Levi has some money and he says, I'm going to use some of this. I'm going to throw a party for Jesus. Everybody needs to see this man. He's had a little bit of time with Jesus. And that was enough to convince him that all of his cronies, all of his road dogs, all of the people he did dirt with, they all need to know this man. And so I'm going to throw out some cash and I'm going to have a party like it's never been right here. And he has a party for Jesus. It's a good time. And verse 15 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. Jesus already had a bunch of Sinners and tax collectors following him. He was not only eating with the worst sinners in town, but the text says that many of them were following him. Now, now, of course, here comes the problem. Verse 16, the scripture says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? Now, apparently, Jesus had never watched the YouTube video on how to be a successful rabbi. You, you don't consort with those people. He had never read Religious Leaders for Dummies. He, he had not read the book yet, and so he was hanging out with the wrong folks. He was breaking the very most basic rules of what you would do to be a religious leader in his day. He was out of step with the other leaders. Thanks be to God. Amen. But when Jesus hears the reaction of the pros, look what he says in verse 17. The scripture says, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but I'm coming for sinners. Praise be to God. We we need to unpack this and look at this, uh, not only to understand what Jesus was saying to his opponents 2,000 years ago, but to see what he is saying to you and I right here and right now. First of all, I want you to notice uh, 
what Jesus called the people who were the most looked down on in the society. He did not say they were scoundrels. He did not say these bad people. He didn't say these nasty folks. Jesus did not other them. Amen. Jesus did not other them as if they were in some other class, some lower class, some lesser class of people. But what did Jesus do with the very worst of the sinners in his day? Here's what he did. Jesus did not marginalize them. Jesus, hear me now, he did not criminalize them. Jesus did not alienate them with his words. In fact, he affirmed their humanity. That's what Jesus did, just like anyone else. And in the face of the religious accusations, now I need you to see this, Jesus drew the attention away from them and put it right back on himself. Jesus says the, the, the physician doesn't come for the sick. Look, anyone can understand that and anyone could be sick at a given time. We'll all be sick at some time. There's no stigma associated with being sick. In fact, in Jesus' answer, he's actually throwing a, a, a sly rebuke at the religious leaders who are unwilling to recognize their own need. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus is likening uh, the, the sin and the sinners to those who are sick instead of and in need. And this is exactly who he came for. The implied question to the Pharisees is this. Do you not see your need to be made well also? That's the question he's asking them. Oh, this is the question that the church needs to look at today. For too long, the church has pretended to be full of healthy and righteous people. Too many people are not comfortable because they feel stigmatized. And they feel like they're looked down on in some way as they come into the gathering of the people of God. Brothers and sisters, this can't continue to be in our day. Younger generations are leaving the church in droves because they feel like in the midst of God's people, they don't experience the love of Jesus. They're not running from Jesus. They're running from a stigma. They're running from a sense that they get that they just don't stack up. Jesus never ran anyone off like that. Here, here's the question I want you to consider. How does your presence affect the Levi's in your world? How does your presence affect the Levi's in your world? First of all, do you see them? Do you see them? Secondly, are they invited to intimate connection with you? Do, do you bring them in to connect, to affirm, to love? And finally, do they get so excited about their time with you that they want to tell everybody else 
not about you, but about the God that is in you, the God that you can't help but talk about, the love of God that just comes out of every pore of your body. Do they want to do that? Folks, when that happens, that's what I call the Jesus effect. Amen. This is a new party here. This is a brand new party with a new feast. It's God's love poured out so thick that it sinks through your skin, through your tissues, through your muscles, into the very marrow of your bones. It is the overwhelming, never-ending, restless love of God. And, and, and it is seen and felt through Jesus and can be seen and felt through the people of God. The party that Levi throws is a preview of a party Jesus is going to throw one day. And at that party, there are going to be people with some reputations there. Some nasty reputations there. And they're going to be right in the front at the party. And there's going to be some other people who are locked outside the party, looking at who's in the party, saying, I thought I was in the party. How come I'm not in the party? Why in the world? How could they possibly be in that party? Here it is. Jesus didn't come for the healthy righteous. No, he didn't. Jesus came for sick sinners. Here's the good news. I qualify. <laughs> and the better news for you, so do you. I hope you know it. I hope you get it. We qualify. Somebody should say amen to that right now. Now, 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 here's what I've noticed a lot of times with church folks. And let me say this. I am a church folk. OK, so when I talk about the church and church folks, I'm talking about me, too, y'all. Not just talking about other folks. We like the idea of what Jesus said. But when we're challenged about the sin in our own lives, in my life as well, sometimes we become extremely defensive. We like the idea of being, oh, I'm sick, I'm a sinner, I need healing, I need Jesus. But when someone points out that sickness, oh, watch out now. You get a little too close. Who do you think you are, by the way? And we'll say that to the Holy Spirit as well. Now, here's what you need to hear. Defensiveness is the ultimate block to us being made more like Jesus. And it reveals a weak gospel foundation. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when we have a secure gospel foundation, we can easily admit our sickness. We can easily admit our sin. And it puts us in a place where we can repent and change. We don't feel attacked. We don't feel minimized. We don't feel like we're being accused of being a bad person because something is pointed out that is sinful in us. Not at all. Instead, we thank God because we know that the great physician is doing his great diagnosis so that he can do his great healing in our lives. We're excited about that. But let me make this real plain. I'm going to talk about me right now. Early in my life, somehow I embraced a lot of shame. I embraced shame about my body and I embraced shame about myself on a very, very deep level. 
Here's what I see. I have to fight that every single day of my life. Got to fight against it every day. But here's what I see is that when, when I am giving into that shame, when I'm living in that, I am not a safe person to be around. Especially, especially if you're bringing anything that might look like conviction that might look like God kind of taking his truth and wanting to gently and lovingly apply it to my life when I'm living out of shame, I react against that. I push that away. I push people away. I'll hurt people. I'll do what I need to do because I have to save myself. But when I know, <laughs> hallelujah, that I am an adopted and loved child of God, the apple of his eye, that I am a friend of God. When I know that, when I live out of that and conviction comes either from the Holy Spirit, from the word of God or through someone's lips, I say, amen. Thank you. Help me, Lord. I'm ready to change. God is so good. The Jesus feast, this is still the feast, is a gathering of tax collectors, of sinners, of broken people who've been changed just by being in the presence of God. That feast doesn't look good to a lot of religious professionals, but God looks on it and says, those are my folks. It looks good to God. Second piece, not only is there a new feast, but there is a new fast. There's a new fast. I don't know about you, but as I read through this passage, and a lot of times reading through the Gospels, it seems like the religious gatekeepers of the day uh, are a little bit obsessed about food stuff. So, so now, first they're saying, Jesus, you're eating with the wrong people. We have a problem. Now they're saying, you're eating at all. You should be fasting. They have a problem around Jesus and food. They're mad at him no matter what he seems to do. But really what this is revealing is that they're having a deep struggle with Jesus. Look, John the Baptist came on the scene and he disrupted things a little bit, right? He called people to repentance, called them out to uh, the, the, the river and had them baptized and had them uh, uh, announce their sins and repent. He caused a little bit of a ruckus, but now this Jesus ruckus is on a whole different level. Jesus is going everywhere and preaching this new gospel. Jesus is calling out demons from people's lives. Jesus is healing everywhere he goes. Did you hear that he actually touched a leper? Did you hear, and we read this last week, Pastor Tim told us that he actually says he's forgiving the sins of someone? Jesus is not just causing a little ruckus. Jesus is changing everything. And it's a little bit too much. Uh, and, and so for the religious gatekeepers of Galilee, here's a problem, too. He's not consulting with us on any of it. Turn it back on. There we go. So he, he's not, they're, they're not happy about that. But, 
But honestly, I can understand the question they're asking in these verses. Maybe you can too. Because it seems like people who are really committed, religious folk, they fast, right? They should fast. They always fasted. The Pharisees fasted. The Sadducees fasted. The, 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 the disciples of John the Baptist fasted. The Essenes, another group, fasted. Fasting is what religious people do. So I can understand them asking this question of Jesus. They say, but Jesus, your folk don't fast at all. What's up with that? It's a fair question. And it gives Jesus the opportunity to tell them why. And it is because of who he is. Jesus says he's the bridegroom. Now, for us, we look at that and say, cool, bridegroom, that sounds good. But to a first century Jewish person, this religious leader, this prophet, this healer, this one who says he forgives sins, when he says, I'm the bridegroom, They are remembering Isaiah 61. They're remembering Isaiah 62. They're remembering Hosea chapter 2, where over and over again through prophets uh, that Yahweh, the Lord, is called the bridegroom of Israel. They're, They're remembering when he says, I'm the bridegroom. They can't fast while the bridegroom is with them. Jesus is saying in language that they get immediately, that they understand immediately that I am that Isaiah 61 and 62, Hosea chapter 2, bridegroom of Israel, I am the Lord in person. What do they do with that? Jesus says, my crew can't fast right now because I, the bridegroom, am with them. One commentator on this passage, R.T. France, puts it this way. He says, the Jesus movement was characterized by celebration rather than solemnity. The religious leaders struggled with that. But Jesus was clear, while I am here on the scene, it's not time to fast. But there's a time coming, and it's not too far off. When I'm physically off the scene, the fasting will be in order again. We live in that day, y'all. I I love this because we now live in this crazy in-between time. Jesus, how many of y'all know Jesus is still here? I hope you know that, right? Jesus is still here, not physically the person that we can touch, but by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is here. And so as believers, we are always ripe for a Holy Spirit-inspired party. And celebration. But, but we're also living in a time when, when fasting, and I'm talking about like real fasting, not I'm going to skip one meal a month fasting. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about push your plate away and seek the face of God fasting. I'm talking about that kind of fasting. We live in a time when that is appropriate as well. We see the utter brokenness of the world that we live in the ugly manifestations of sin both in us and all around us we see the constant attack against the image of God from the womb to the tomb and that should cause us to weep and call us to fast 
as we seek to know God better in the midst of all of this brokenness. God, help us to know you better in the midst of a broken world. I love a phrase that's used by pastor and author Daniel Hill. He says the appropriate posture of believers is one of hopeful lament. Say that with me, hopeful lament. Say it one more time, hopeful lament. I know I've talked about this a little lately, but I want to get you to get that in your head. A posture of hopeful lament. And I think that this passage speaks to it. Listen, of all the people in the world, followers of Jesus should be more filled with hope than anyone else. God has come for you. Jesus has died for you. Jesus has gotten up out of the grave with all power in his hands for you. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father for you. And Jesus is coming back again for you. Of everyone in the world, we should be a people of hope. But at the same time, Christians should also know the very depths of lament like no one else in the world. When we see the constant attack against the image of God in people of color, when we see rising anti-Semitism, when we see the utter confusion in our world right now about gender and sexuality, when we see the exploitation of children, the abuse of the environment, when we see the worship of money that continues to divide and degrade people, we are called to press into lament. And in doing this, we live in an age when fasting is appropriate. We don't fast to manipulate God. We fast to know God. As believers, we hold hope and lament intention together. We live with both of those things all the time at the same time. We grieve as those who have a sure hope that is founded on the truth of God's word and his promised intervention into history. We're called both to feasting and to fasting. And then Jesus summarizes all of this in an amazing way as he demonstrates just how his life changes everything. And this is the third point, a radical break, a radical break. Finally, Jesus summarizes this in two parables of the kingdom of God. Jesus says that, if a patch, if you patch an old garment with a patch that is brand new, that patch will shrink and it will tear the old garment up and make it worse than it was in the first place. He says that the new wine or that the new and the old cannot work together that way. And then he makes it even clearer in the second parable. The old wineskins can't contain new wine. He says, because the old wineskins have already been stretched to their limit. When new wine is poured into them the, and fermentation starts, life is in that new wine and the fermentation wants to expand those wineskins. There's no 
room to expand. And so they burst open. It splits and the wine and the wineskins are both destroyed. Jesus is the new wine. Amen. The pre-religious status quo, the pre-Jesus status quo has to be thrown out. Every Christian gets this. I think every Christian knows that. But there's an application of this that's always challenging in every place and in every time when the gospel is being propagated. And this is what we need to get. In January, I preached on the parallel passage to this in in, uh, Luke chapter 5. Jesus talked about new wineskins. And in that message, I talked about the founder of the New Life Movement, Jack Miller, who was attacked over and over and over again by critics. He was attacked because he was using music that they didn't use in their churches before. He was attacked because they were going after new people, tax collectors and sinners, in a way that the church hadn't been going after before. He was attacked because he was emphasizing theological concepts that others weren't emphasizing at the time. He was attacked because he was willing to use methods that others in his denomination didn't use and it didn't fit into their norms but here's the reality new life and the new life movement grew much faster than the other churches in that denomination jack saw the need for new wineskins and he wasn't afraid when he understood the radical implications of it and so here's our question how do we reach new people for jesus in our day in our place In this generation, like Jack, we need to be willing to follow the Holy Spirit in order to reach new people for Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. When churches become entrenched in their ways and they're unwilling to make spirit-directed changes, here are three things that happen. Number one, when churches are not willing to make drastic changes to reach new generations, they ensure that they will not reach those generations. Somebody say, will not. It's not a question of should we, but it's a question of God lead us. How? It's going to be radically different from generation to generation. And if we are not willing to change, make drastic changes, we are writing off another generation in the name of our tradition. Secondly, when churches don't make drastic changes to reach new people groups, they ensure that they won't reach those new people groups. It's easy to be a mono-ethnic or homogeneous church. And New Life hasn't been that for a long time. New Life has been a diverse church in many ways. But brothers and sisters, to reach our community even more effectively, we've got to put on other skins and other ways so that we can reach more people in this community who will not only say, boy, those people are nice, boy, they love God, but man, I feel like home is at New Life Church. We need to change 
for that. And thirdly, churches not willing to make drastic changes are operating with old wineskins and they're content with their old wine. This is good enough for me. This is just fine. I like it the way it is. We cannot ever be that church. Not 10 years after I'm off the scene, 50 years after I'm off the scene, if Jesus tarries, if Jesus doesn't come back, we need to continue to change and to look at how can we reach next generations for Jesus. Most of you know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where the scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. They're a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That is true for each and every individual who brings Jesus Christ into their life. And that is true for institutions and organisms and churches as we change in order to reach next generations for Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is this. The message of the cross never changes, but our methods can change to reach new people for Jesus. During the Protestant Reformation, um, everything changed in the church. And in that Reformation and in subsequent revivals, there was new music that came into the church over and over again. And during those revivals and in that Reformation, the music that came to the church uh, the words were penned by the new pastors and the new theologians, but the music was from the taverns and the bars all around. And when people heard the music that they liked from the bar, but they heard the words of Jesus, they were drawn to it. They were drawn to it. In, in, in many of the revivals in, uh, in, in America, there was open air preaching that went on. And, and the religious establishment said, that is so uncouth. That's so out of pocket. I think they said out of pocket in the 18th century. They said, that's just out of pocket. We don't like that. You ought to be in a church and you need to be behind the pulpit and you need to do it this way. And yet God saved countless thousands of people through that open air preaching. And even New Life Church itself it comes out of the Jesus people movement in the late 60s and into the 70s and 80s. This Jesus people movement with new music and new ways of expressing things. Jack was in that flow as well. And God reached people through that. But God is not done. He's not done. Here's what I want you to see. Now we're two decades plus into the 21st century. We can't use 20th century gospel methodology. We've got to use new methods. Some things stay the same. Preaching the word, let's keep preaching it. But some things have to change and culture is moving way too fast for us to keep looking in the rearview mirror and say, this worked in 1983, this worked in 1995. We need to say, what do we need to work now? Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, lead us. Young people, help us. Young people, help us. Let me finish with this. Dolph Shays was a star in the NBA doing this. It wouldn't work today. 
We can all think of ways in which we've seen God move and praise be to God for how he's moved in our lives and in time and over the centuries and we ought to learn from all of those things don't throw them out let's learn from them but let's also have our ear open to the Holy Spirit and to the voice of younger people to say how is it that we can reach this generation and the next generation and the next generation for Jesus Christ Jesus changes things. Kingdom creating change. Let me pray. And let's ask our God to do a work in us and ask our God to do a work through us that we may reach this world for Jesus in a powerful way. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you today for the move of your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we stand on a rock, that there are these things that never change. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there are other things, oh God, that help us because they are like deep tent pegs in the ground that don't change. But God, help us to discern the difference between those things that we can change, between methodology that we can embrace and use to reach more people for Jesus. Lord, do a work in your church. Touch each of your people and glorify your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>